Well, good morning to you all again, and I guess this time I'll say Happy New Year's, since last Sunday was technically New Year's Eve. But today we're continuing on with some more of these Q&A sermons that we started last time, and I'm going to keep 2017 in the title because even though it's 2018, questions were asked, I guess, last year. It just keeps things simpler. But speaking of, tech, uh, usually when I finish preaching through a book of the Bible, like we just finished Philippians, or around the end of the year, I like to do a few of these Q&A sermons where I give you all the chance to submit any sort of Bible question you like, and then we come together, we answer them together. Uh, I really value these times. Church today, especially on Sunday mornings, has become quite structured. And in preaching a sermon, there's not much interaction. And that's kind of the point, I guess. It's not a dialogue, it's a monologue. In the New Testament, though, you see a lot of dialoguing going on. Jesus often taught in dialogue format. With his disciples, with the crowds, they asked him questions all the time, and he took time to answer them all. And also many of the New Testament epistles, they're in question and answer format. Now, we are called to preach the word, and that is largely one-way communication. But in the church, there should be some place for dialogue, for people to ask all their questions and to find answers. And that's something we incorporate into our Sunday evening and Wednesday evening times together where you can ask away during our Bible studies. And in the future, as small groups develop, that will be a perfect place for you to just contend for the faith, reason through the faith together in a, in a small group environment. But that being said, I think it's good to introduce some of that, I guess you could say, interactivity into our Sunday morning gathering from time to time. And, well, here we are. And without further ado, not much more introduction is needed. So we're going to get started and make our way into more of your questions from from last time. See how many we can get through today as well. I have to say, though, probably most of our time will be spent on this first one because it is a big one. And so let's start with question number one. Is there fate or do we have free will? Is there fate or do we have free will? Might as well shoot for the stars, right? Go for the big one at the beginning. This is the question I teased you with last week. And I figured out, I might as well just start off with it this week and just, just go for it. Probably going to take all our time anyway. So this is an age-old question. It's been asked by philosophers forever. This time around, though, you should know this question was posed by one of our youths, which just goes to show you that eventually everybody has this question. It's at some point you get old enough, you just start to wonder about the world, and am I, am I just a robot or am I free? Well, This person added that they believe the Bible says we have some sort of a free will, but they also believe that God has a plan which is going to come true, so they're just trying to make sense of it all. Can't blame them there. And I would ask, what about you? Have you you figured this one out? You've, You've got it all covered. I guess you can test yourself. I'll give you the short answer to begin with. The short answer. Is there fate? No. There's God, and he's sovereign over all things. Is there free will? Well, in one sense, yes. In another sense, no. There you go. There's your answer. (laughs) But I know the short answer is not going to be too helpful, not going to help you that much. So I'm going to give you the medium-length answer this morning. And this is going to be another one of those times, I say it every now and then, that I hope you had your coffee this morning. Just the nature of the question, you have to get into it a little bit. Again, it's an age-old question. People have been debating this forever. And just to give you some background, the idea of fate didn't come from the ancient Greeks, but they're, they're kind of known for it in ancient Greek mythology. They personified fate as three white-robed women known as the three fates or the morai. 
And together they directed the destiny of all things. They were like the ultimate powers. Even the gods had to submit to fate. Of course, no one today thinks of fate as three white-robed women. Instead, we use fate to refer to just generically some sort of outside force that directs all of our lives. Now, the atheist believing in fate would have a hard time actually telling you what it is. But for the theist, it's fate is really just another term that you might use for God's sovereign control of the universe. Now, some people, though, they're very opposed to any idea of fate or God's providence, whatever you call it, because to them, they contend it leads to fatalism. What is fatalism? Well, fatalism or determinism is a belief that everything that happens has already been determined or fated. Therefore, whatever happens in the end could not have happened any other way. But this, in turn, means your choices aren't real. Because even though you think you're making a choice, it's already been determined. It couldn't happen any other way. Therefore, your choice wasn't really free, they would say. And so in reality, we're really powerless to do anything other than what's already been determined for us. We're just following a script. And such fatalism, as you can imagine, often leads to a sense of meaninglessness if our choices and actions have been in one way or another determined, then really nothing we do matters. If we have no free will, we're just like robots or computer programs. We're following our code. We're just doing what's been declared for us, and that's it. In addition, some would say this eliminates, if this is true, it eliminates human responsibility for good and evil. I mean, since we have no free will, well, then we have no real control over our choices, We're merely doing what's been determined. So how can you really be held accountable for what you do? The murderer is merely doing what what fate determined for him. So can he really be held guilty? Problems like these have led many to therefore just reject, like I said, any notion of fate or God's providence in favor of free will. And so they'll say, no, you, you are in total control of your own destiny. And you make your own future. Nothing's been written. You have free will, which is the ability to make choices that have not been determined. You know, like it sure feels like we have free will, right? We do the things we want to do. And at the same time, we also, we hold people responsible for their actions. So this is why I would say that today, at least in my experience, the vast majority of people favor this notion of free will. You know, we've moved beyond thinking of fate as three white-robed women who control all our destinies. Nevertheless, the debate, it still rages on, fate versus free will. This debate has certainly entered Christian circles, where some Christians hold to a high view of God and his sovereign control over all things, Whereas others, they they still believe in God, but they believe that God has given us this free will, which he does not affect or control. He he stands back from it. So, which is it? Now, we aren't really interested in philosophy here. Our concern as Christians is simply to figure out what the Bible says, right? Now, 
you know, I don't really care what some dead Greek guy has, has said about all this. I mean, that, that's for your own time. If you want to look at philosophy, knock yourself out. But we just, we're more interested in what God's word has to say about this huge issue. So let's now just bring God's word to bear on the question. Is there fate? Do we have free will? So you should know, the Bible never uses the word fate. It's more of an atheistic concept for those who don't recognize God's control. The Bible, of course does recognize God's control. So better terms would be God's providence or God's sovereignty, which can be defined as God's comprehensive rule over all creation. And this is a good place to start. Let me just give you a a brief but clear survey of God's comprehensive sovereignty in Scripture. First, God is sovereign over nature. Countless verses like Matthew 5.45 declare that God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall and the grass to grow. Now, all these things have natural causes. We know that. But Scripture teaches that God behind that directs these natural causes to accomplish his will. He's sovereign over the means and the end. God is also sovereign over nations. The Bible often speaks of God ordering the affairs of entire nations, directing their rise and their fall according to his will, his plan. So Job 12.23 testifies that God makes nations great and then destroys them. Daniel 4.17 says that God Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Acts 17.26 even goes so far as to say that God has determined the appointed times and boundaries of all the nations. So far from being a passive observer, God is pictured as actively moving and directing the nations according to his will and plan. That sounds pretty sovereign to me, determining their times, their boundaries, It doesn't stop there. God is also sovereign over individual lives, your life. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And Proverbs 69 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You see, like Isaiah 64 8 says, God is the potter, we are the clay. And he, he fashions us according to his will. Understand, God's control over our lives even extends to the number of our days. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, David declares, In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. All of his days ordained before he was even born. Then there's really countless more verses like this, each showing God is supreme. He's sovereign over all. He directs all things according to his sovereign will. Now, as clear as this is in Scripture, still, when people hear this, some they, they still raise this objection, saying, like, you know, if, if all this is, is true, then, then we don't have a free will. If God has ordained all things, then we're merely robots And that leads to determinism or fatalism, and nothing has any meaning. And so therefore, some will argue that, okay, God has control over all things, except our will. 
that God himself chose to give us humans this free will that he does not determine. And this libertarian free will means we have the power of contrary choice, and God can in no way affect or control our choices. He can't cause them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be free. They contend. The problem with this, though, is that the Bible never says any of this. Right? You know, the Bible never says we have such a libertarian free will. You know, it might surprise you, the Bible doesn't even mention the term free will once. It's not in the Bible. Rather, this is just an example of people importing man's philosophy into Scripture. This teaching, in the end, it makes man's will supreme, such that not even God can affect it or control it. He's hands off. Our will is supreme in the universe. That's just the opposite of what the Bible says. Rather, God's will is supreme. And I know this teaching may belittle man, but it glorifies God, and rightly so. He is supreme. Isaiah 46, verse 10 God declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Daniel 4.35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens He does whatever he pleases. God's not bound by anything. He is the one with a free will. If there's any being that has a a truly free will, it's God. It's, It's not us. The Bible presents God and his will as being completely supreme in the universe. And his will will be done in the end. Now, again, though, in hearing this, even you might now be be thinking and saying, like, okay, but does that mean... We have no will that, okay, that's it. We're just robots and all this really is meaningless. No, not at all. So let's, let's keep going. Let's start with this. We've established God's sovereignty. It's, it's on every page of the scriptures. But ask this question, does man have a will? Do we have a will? Yes, of course we have a will. God did create us with the ability to make choices. And that's what, that's what a will is, to make decisions, to make choices. We have that ability. And because we have a will, we are indeed held responsible for our choices. You know, Boulder, for instance, has no will, and it's not responsible for what it does. And so when a boulder breaks free from a cliff and falls and, and crushes someone, we don't take the boulder to jail. It just just sits there. It has no will. It fell because of gravity. It's not held responsible. It did not choose to do anything. But humans were were different because we do have the ability to make moral choices. So, yes, we, we definitely have a will. And this is everywhere clear in Scripture as well. We are never in the Bible presented as as robots, which is why, keep in mind, God commands us. Right? He tells us to do certain things. He gives us commands, expecting us to obey them. He calls us to make good choices. We do have a choice in things. And this is why God holds us accountable for the choices we make. To obey, to not obey, you choose, and you will be held accountable accordingly. 
Now, this may create a little tension, but the fact is, Scripture is everywhere clear that God is completely sovereign over all things. But it's also everywhere clear that we are completely responsible for our actions, for our choices. Now, the next question, though, okay, we have a will. Is our will free? I told you earlier, the, the short answer is yes and no. I know that's, a, that's an annoying answer, right? So I'll, I'll have to explain it, of course. So in the first sense, yes. Yes, our will is free in the sense of being able to do what we want to do, to act according to our desires. We are free to act according to our desires. We are creatures of desire. And even though God knows our choices, we have no knowledge of God's hidden will. And when we do something, we're merely acting according to our will, our desires. This explains how God can ordain our choices, yet they're still real choices for us. Because when we act, we're merely doing what we want to do. So, for example, when you get married, you choose your spouse. You marry that person because you want to, I guess, unless it's an arranged marriage. But otherwise, you choose that person because you want to. You are acting according to your desire, and it's a free choice. In God's eyes, though, according to his plan, he's ordained that choice. He knows it. He's ordained it. He knew and planned that you would marry that person according to his hidden will. But you had no knowledge of God's choice. You had no knowledge of his plan whatsoever. You merely acted according to your own will. Therefore, your choice is free, which is why you're still held responsible for your choice, even though God has also ordained it. And this really applies to all of our choices. The supreme example of this really comes in the cross of Christ, which, by the way, was was the greatest evil ever done. Right, The unjust murder of the sinless Son of God, that was an act of evil. But did God ordain for Jesus to die on the cross? Absolutely. Of course, we know that. Yet, that event was brought about by the free choices and decisions of wicked men who will be held accountable for the murder of the sinless Son of God. And so in Acts 2.23, Peter says that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Yet, godless men are held accountable for nailing him to the cross. Well, I thought, I thought it's God's plan. It is. But these men are the ones who carried it out of their own free will, so to speak. Their choice, their desire, they did what they wanted to do. And they're held responsible. And later, Acts 4.27 Peter says this, he says, For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It doesn't actually get much clearer than that. The cross of Christ, Pilate, Herod. Jews, Gentiles, they all assembled to kill Jesus. And they did it because they wanted to. Yet at the same time, they were merely doing whatever God's hand had predestined to occur. It's just what it says. Read it for yourself. In the end, they acted according to their will. 
And their will was free in the sense of being able to act according to one's desires. And at the same time, they were fulfilling God's plan for them. We know only the infinite mind of God could, could work all this out, but we are simply called to accept that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they're not enemies in Scripture, but friends. And like Spurgeon said, we don't need to reconcile friends. They live together just fine. God's sovereign, we are responsible. So the Bible teaches, yes, we have a will, a will that is free to act according to one's desires, and that we make real choices for which we will be held accountable. At the same time, though, God knows and has ordained all of our choices, and so we are just called to let that be, accept both truths, and we have to let God and his word define reality and not man's philosophy and speculations. Now, to round off this question, though, like I said, in one sense, I told you our will is free, so this is how. We are free to act according to our desires. But in another sense, our will is not free. So let me finish and explain this part here. It's true we're free to act according to our desires, but that freedom is limited. That freedom is limited, such that, according to Scripture, it's actually better to speak of our will not as free, but as bound. We have a bound will. Get this point. Our freedom is limited by our ability. It's going to make sense in a second. Our freedom is limited by our ability. So if I told you to jump to the moon... You couldn't do it, obviously, but why not? I thought you've got free will. You can do anything you want, right? Well, yeah, but obviously, I mean, our will is limited by our ability. You don't have the ability to jump to the moon. Therefore, you're, you're not actually free to do so. You can want to, but it doesn't matter. You're not free to do so because you can't. And so along these lines, the Bible actually teaches we have lost certain abilities. Like what? Well, like the ability to choose God, the ability to know God, the ability to find God, we've lost. We've lost that in sin, in the fall. And so after the fall, we are spiritually disabled. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It's a verse on ability. The unbeliever can't understand spiritual truth because they're dead. They're spiritually dead. Fallen man can't understand the truth on his own. He also can't accept it. He can't come to God. He can't come to Jesus on his own. John 6, Jesus himself said that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and later grants him. It's another verse on ability. You can't come to Jesus and be saved unless first the Father draws you. He just said it. It's so plain. He just says it. Why not? Why can't we come? Well, like Romans 6 says, because we're all enslaved to sin. We're actually not free in this sense. We're enslaved to sin after the fall and its desires. We're not free. And to make matters worse, we're also enslaved to Satan, the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that the God of this world, Satan, 
has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the glory of the gospel and believe. That sounds pretty serious, that Satan is actively blinding the minds of the lost that they can't see and believe the gospel. Even more, Paul says this of those lost in sin, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. He desires that God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. See, God has to grant them repentance. And he says also that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. doesn't sound very free. It sounds like, well, like it says, they're held captive by him to do his will. See, before salvation, we are actually never depicted as free to choose God, but rather bound enslaved to sin and Satan, held captive to do their will. It doesn't sound like much of a free will, does it? This is a big problem, actually, which is why the Bible also teaches that unless God intervenes, unless he does draw people, like Jesus said, making them spiritually alive, no one will be saved. If God does not intervene and do something about our, our deadness, No one can be saved. No one is going to believe. No one will come to God on their own because no one has the ability. Our freedom is limited by our ability. You can't come unless the Father draws you and grants you to come. So it is in this sense that we do not have a free will. We are not free to choose God or know God because we are limited by our ability. We're born spiritually dead hopelessly lost and just cut off from God in in sin. But we can thank God that he did choose to intervene and, and do something about this. And this also explains now the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty in salvation, which is otherwise known as predestination. Ephesians 1, listen to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us. It doesn't say we chose Him. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless in Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. According to what? According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And verse 11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. There's there's nothing in there about your will and you choosing God. He chose you according to his will to bring you to life. Realize, though, God doesn't coerce anyone. He doesn't drag anyone kicking and screaming into the kingdom. It is true. We must believe to be saved. You must choose to believe in Jesus to be saved. That's true. But your will is bound. You can't do it. Well, this is why God first opens blind eyes. And he raises the spiritual dead to new life. And he causes the light of the gospel to shine in their heart. He essentially frees your will in regeneration, enabling you to believe of your free will, to choose Christ, which you must do. 
this sovereign work God accomplishes in his people. And apart from this, none would be saved. None would make that choice to believe in Jesus. God must work first. But again, thanks be to God who frees us in Christ. And when you understand this teaching and when you appreciate what the Bible says so clearly, again, it it shrinks mankind, but it magnifies God. And, And rightly so. He is supreme. He's worthy of all honor and exhortation, or exaltation rather, for salvation belongs to the Lord. And we who have been called, we now, we give all thanks and praise to him, to the glory of his grace. Precisely because we are free, or rather because we are are not free, we must be saved by grace. Because we're bound and lost and dead, This is why the Bible says we're saved by grace, not by effort, by grace and grace alone. This is why we sang this morning, Amazing Grace. You sang it. Did you mean it? My chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. We sing it. So praise God for his grace, his amazing grace by which we are saved. Well, I think I'll leave it there for now. So you have the answer. I gave you the short answer. Now you've got the medium answer. I tell you this, if you want the really long answer, though, if you're not done, just go to our website. We've actually been teaching on this on Wednesday nights. We're actually halfway through, but you can go on our website, get the Doctrines of Grace series, and you'll get, for now, like the 10-hour version, maybe a little bit more. But we have some time. Let's move on. Question number two. Question number two. We'll do a couple quick questions here. This one has a preface. This person said, I've been hearing a lot lately on Calvary Chapel Lompoc's radio or Lompoc's radio station about being baptized in the Holy Spirit or for praying for more of the Holy Spirit and how we're neglecting to ask. Therefore, he's not working in us as much as he could be. What do you think? It's a good question. I'll just modify it from what do you think to what does the Bible say about that? Because that's our goal here. So the real question is basically what does the Bible say about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's basically what this person is asking. This one I'll try and summarize because we've actually discussed this not too long ago. Also on a Wednesday night, I want to give a couple messages just talking about charismatic issues. And we talked about their view of baptism of the Holy Spirit in in greater detail, but let's give the short version here. Now, part of the confusion comes because charismatic churches often conflate being filled with the Spirit with the baptism of the Spirit. But they are not the same thing. They are two different things. Now, I trust you know at salvation, all believers are, in that, in that moment, permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. At the same time, though, we are still called and commanded to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and to walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. These are continual commands. We are expected to obey them. But these commands, they have nothing to do with receiving more of the Spirit, like we're lacking, we need to be topped off. It's not the picture. Rather, they have to do with submitting to the Spirit who has already been given in full. God's grace has already been poured out in our hearts. We're fully equipped by the Spirit already given. Now, though, we are still responsible before God to walk in his ways and to live rightly. And so to the degree that you are being controlled and led by the Spirit, you will 
walk in God's ways and live rightly. And this in turn happens when you are saturated with the mind of Christ, Colossians 3.16 says, which is akin to being saturated and controlled and led by God's word. You have to understand the same word that the Spirit inspired is the same word that the Spirit uses to save and sanctify God's people. God has put his power in his word by which he created all things, right? By a word. Christ came as the incarnate what? The incarnate word. And we have now the written word by which God uses to save and sanctify his people. God promises to work through, uh, in our lives through his word. It's no different than Jesus said, John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. See, we can't do anything apart from Christ, so we need to abide in him. But then, you know, how do we do that? How do we abide in him and, and he in us? Well, as he says in the next few verses, you abide in me and, and my words abide in you. See, as his words that he has left behind abide in you, you are abiding with him. He then, in the same chapter, goes to talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit who makes real our abiding with Christ. So the picture is, as we are constantly communing with God in prayer and filling our minds with his word, the Spirit within uses this to guide us and lead us into all righteousness. This is the picture of walking by the Spirit. I'm being brief, but I hope, I hope you're with me. I hope you, you get that and that makes sense to you. Now, the problem, though, is most often this is not at all what charismatics mean when they say you need more of the Spirit in your life. Again, they confuse walking by the Spirit with baptism in the Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is a biblical concept. It's just a separate concept that needs to be distinguished. So if you want now, you can actually turn to 1 Corinthians 12. We'll get there in a second if you'd like to follow along. Just a few verses you know, Pentecostalism began with this belief that you need a second experience after salvation to attain a higher level of spirituality. You need a second blessing to really arrive. And this second blessing came to be associated with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this was evidenced by speaking in tongues. Now, thankfully, this person actually asked a question regarding Calvary Chapel. Calvary Chapel has actually dropped the whole necessity of speaking in tongues. But in their doctrinal statement, they still say, uh, say this, quote, We believe in the baptism with the Holy Spirit as a distinct and separate experience to that of regeneration, occurring either subsequent to or simultaneous with salvation, evidenced by a greater dynamic in the Christian's life, enabling that person to be a bold and more effective witness. But notice here still the key word, experience. This is an experience. The point is, charismatics in general believe that you receive the Spirit at salvation, yeah, you know, in a limited sense, but you still, you need more. You need more filling, more power. You need a greater experience if you're really going to just be spiritual, get that higher level of spirituality than everyone else. Now, as you can imagine, this creates a really a, a two-class system in these churches, the haves and the have-nots. 
Those who, who've experienced the second blessing, they're, they're the spiritual ones and then everybody else. And this, of course, also creates a, an immense pressure to do what? To speak in tongues, to prove you've arrived, you've got that second blessing, you've been filled. Now, it's true, they do get this whole notion from Acts chapter 2, where the apostles, they did receive the Spirit, and then they did speak in tongues. That's completely true. The, the problem is that, that Pentecostals get the whole event of Pentecost wrong. That's what that is, Pentecost, Acts 2, the coming of the Spirit. It's kind of ironic because Pentecostals, that their namesake, they don't make too much of Pentecost, they make too little of it. Realize Pentecost, or the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, it's not just some sort of experience that God was giving the disciples some great experience of power. Rather, it was completely tied into the new covenant work of Jesus Christ. It's at the, the very heart of his finished work. The work of Christ goes like this. Life, death, resurrection, ascension, then Pentecost. It's not a separate event. It's part of his finished work. The sending of the Spirit is still part of this, this his work. You know, think of the atonement that Jesus accomplished on the cross. If he never sent the Spirit, that atonement would never be applied to anyone. And the church would never be populated. It would be forever empty if the Spirit never came. Pentecost is essential to this new covenant plan of salvation. So you see that? That's what the Spirit does. In salvation, he applies the atonement. He brings people to new life. He grants them entrance into the church via union with Christ. You know, the sending of the Spirit, it's not about giving believers some sort of secondary experience of, of spirituality. Rather, it signified the beginning of new covenant salvation, where God was finally pouring out his Spirit upon everyone, as promised in the Old Testament. You know, there's more here, but at the very least, 1 Corinthians 12 makes the purpose of this Spirit baptism very clear. If you're there, look at verses 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. For Paul says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. You know, this verse is problematic for charismatics because it's clear this baptism of the Spirit, it, it, it applies to, to all believers. It's not just for some, the, the special ones, the spiritual ones. It's for every believer. And it's also clear it takes place at the moment of salvation. Spirit baptism is just another aspect of new covenant salvation, whereby every believer is immediately granted entrance into the church and made a part of this one body of Christ. That's what it's all about. It signifies our unity in the body of Christ. Just like Ephesians 4 says, which Tony read this morning, there's one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Pentecostals, Charismatics urge, there's two baptisms and you need the second baptism. But no, there's 
There's one body, one spirit, one baptism. So to some, this whole idea of baptism of the spirit and acts as being some sort of a special blessing to empower people is, is way off. They, they reduce Pentecost and the coming of the spirit to some sort of power encounter with the Holy Ghost that, that enables you to be super spiritual and, and to wield signs and wonders, to do great things. But actually, what God was doing with the Spirit in the book of Acts, it was far greater than that. So again, they don't make too much of Pentecost. They make too little of it. God was beginning his new covenant program of salvation. And what happened at Pentecost was the capstone of Christ's atoning work. It cannot nor should not be repeated today as some second experience after salvation. Rather, we all receive the Spirit and are baptized by the Spirit in the moment of regeneration, by which you are made alive and immediately knit into the body of Christ. Again, more can be said on this, but here I might point you to a pair of messages on our website where we talked about these issues in a couple of messages titled, very simply, Why We Are Not a Charismatic Church. Well, I think for here, a couple more questions, but being a communion Sunday, I'm going to call it. Time of death, you know, right now. I think we're going to call it here. So we got more. Well, I guess we'll come back next week for one more message on these Q&A sermons. I hope this time was profitable for you, though. And a good note to end on, highlighting the Holy Spirit and his role in making us new, drawing us to Christ, and making us one. So with that, let's end in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we, we praise you this morning for... What we've learned, and these, these Q&A sermons can be a bit scattered, but Lord, anytime we, we turn to your word and open them, we're, we're going to profit and learn about a God who's, who's sovereign, a spirit who comes and, and, and brings us to life, and a, a savior who, who reconciles us. We give you glory, Lord, for, for being our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, together, perfectly working in, in harmony to, to restore this fallen creation, this world is fallen. We, we know in our heart of hearts things are wrong because of sin and Satan and death itself. The world is not as it should be, Lord, but as we reflected on this morning, we can praise you for this plan, this sovereign plan to save. You did this by sending your son to die a perfect death on the cross, the sinless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to rise from the dead. That all of our sins can be forgiven, that we can be made new, that we can be perfectly restored and reconciled to you, Lord. We remember this. We worship you for this, Lord. And we also praise you, Lord, for not stopping there, but also sending the Spirit to apply this grand work of atonement to our lives. The Spirit, the one who opens our eyes, who gives us new life, who draws us to the Father. And as we come, Lord, is the Spirit who, by which we, we fellowship with you. We have really the presence of God in us as we speak through your spirit whom you've given. And we are also knit together as one, one body with one Lord and one faith. And I pray we just dwell and reflect on this oneness this morning, that the great outcome of our salvation, our reconciliation vertically with you, Lord, and also even horizontally with one another. This is a, just a magnificent a majestic work you've done on our behalf. And I pray again this morning we, we just exalt you as you reflect on these truths. We give you all the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.